Section 52 of the United States. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Devorah Allen. The World Story, Volume 13. The United States. Edited by Ava March Tappan. Section 52. Remember the Alamo. By Cyrus Townsend Brady. The Alamo is an ancient Spanish mission in the present city of San Antonio. Here, in 1836, during the Texas struggle for freedom, a band of 180 Americans and Texans, including David Crockett, the famous scout, and James Bowie, inventor of the Bowie knife, were attacked by a Mexican army under General Santa Anna. The Editor. On the 23rd of February, 1836, Santa Anna in person appeared before the fort with the advance of his army and demanded its surrender. He had led some five thousand men of the Mexican regular army, with many camp followers and women, a forced march of one hundred and eighty leagues from Monclova to San Antonio, across a desert country in the depth of a Texas winter, with its extremes of heat and cold and blasting storm. Only after incredible hardships and great losses had the terrible march been completed. That Santa Anna could do this is no small evidence of his capacity as a leader, and his ability to inspire his men to heroic action. His arrival was a complete surprise to the Texans. Many of them were scattered through the town at a fandango at the time. When the alarm was given they repaired to the Alamo, and Travis met the demand for a surrender by a shot from his battery, at the same time hoisting his flag. This was the white, red, and green banner of the Mexican Republic, with two stars, Texas Coahuila, in the center in place of the familiar eagle and serpent. The lone star flag had not then been adopted. Santa Anna displayed a red ensign, signifying that no quarter would be given, and began erecting batteries with which he opened fire, the Texans replying with good effect. The Mexicans, while greatly outnumbering the garrison, were not yet in sufficient force completely to invest the works although their numbers were increasing as the different regiments followed the advance guard, and the Texans might easily have escaped. Travis, however, had no thought of retreating. Not he. He immediately dispatched the following appeal for assistance. To the people of Texas and all Americans in the world. Commandancy of the Alamo. Bear, February 24, 1836. Fellow citizens and compatriots, I am besieged by a thousand or more of the Mexicans under Santa Anna. I have sustained a continual bombardment for twenty-four hours and have not lost a man. The enemy have demanded a surrender at discretion. Otherwise the garrison is to be put to the sword if the place is taken. I have answered the summons with a cannon shot, and our flag still waves proudly from the walls. I shall never surrender or retreat. Then I call upon you in the name of liberty, of patriotism, and of everything dear to the American character, to come to our aid with all dispatch. The enemy are receiving reinforcements daily, and will no doubt increase to three or four thousand in four or five days. Though this call may be neglected, I am determined to sustain myself as long as possible, and die like a soldier who never forgets what is due to his own honor and that of his country. Victory or death. W. Barrett Travis, Lieutenant Colonel, Commanding. P.S. The Lord is on our side. When the army appeared in sight, we had not three bushels of corn. 
we have since found in deserted houses eighty or ninety bushels, and got into the walls twenty or thirty beeves. Brave Travis. Other ringing sentences from his subsequent letters are worth quoting. I shall continue to hold the Alamo until I get relief from my countrymen, or I perish in its defense. Take care of my little boy. If the country should be saved, I may make him a splendid fortune. But if the country should be lost and I should perish, he would have nothing but the proud recollection that he is the son of a man who died for his country. The thought of that little boy adds a touch of pathos to the story of the dauntless cavalier and his devoted band facing fearful odds for liberty and honor, God and Texas, victory or death. Travis also dispatched messengers invoking assistance from adjacent garrisons. Colonel James Butler Bonham, a young South Carolina volunteer, broke through the Mexican lines and rode post-haste to Colonel Fannin at Goliad, some two hundred miles to the southeast. Fannin promptly started out with three hundred men and four guns, but his ammunition wagons broke down, his transportation failed him, his provisions gave out, he could not get his artillery over the rivers, and he was reluctantly forced to turn back. He tried in vain to keep Bonham with him. I will report to Travis or die in the attempt, returned the chivalric Carolinian, who had been a schoolboy friend of Travis, as he started back to the fort. At one o'clock in the morning of March 3rd, he succeeded in reaching the fort through the beleaguering army, after a long and dangerous ride, in which he literally took his life in his hands. So far as anyone could see, he came back to certain death with his friends. Honor to him. Travis had received a valuable reinforcement of thirty-two heroic fellows from Gonzales, who dashed through the lines on horses, cutting their way into the Alamo at three in the morning of March 1st. Captain J.W. Smith led them, and they came cheerfully, although they divined what their fate would be if the place was stormed. For eleven days, the siege continued. The Mexicans lost heavily whenever they came within rifle range. On one occasion they tried to bridge the aqueduct, and thirty of them were instantly killed. Sorties were made by the besieged at first, but were soon given over. The bombardment of the works was continuous, but strange to say, no Texan was killed, although the whole garrison was completely worn out by the strain of ceaseless watching and continual fighting. There is no question but they could have cut their way out and escaped at almost any time, but no one dreamed of such a thing. They were there to stay until the end, whatever it might be. Santa Anna would undoubtedly get the fort eventually. Well, he might have it by paying the price. So they reasoned but that price would be one, in the words of a later revolutionist, that would stagger humanity. Knowing Santa Anna, they could have no doubt of his intentions toward them, especially as he had made no secret of his purpose to put them all to death, unless they surrendered at discretion. The calm courage with which they face this appalling certainty is as noteworthy as the high heroism of their last defense. The last of Santa Anna's army arrived at Bear on the 2nd of March. He allowed them three days for recuperation, and on the 5th held a council of war to decide upon the course to be pursued. The council, like every other, was divided, with a preponderance of opinion in favor of waiting for siege guns to breach or batter down the walls. Santa Anna, however, determined upon an immediate assault, to be delivered at daybreak the next morning. 
2,500 picked men in four columns, commanded respectively by General Duquet, Romero, and Morales, were detailed to make the attack. They were provided with scaling ladders, axes, and crowbars in addition to their weapons, and the cavalry of the army was disposed at strategic points to prevent escape, should any of the 180 defenders succeed in breaking through the assaulting columns or possibly their function was to cut down any panic-stricken Mexican who might wish to withdraw from before the death-dealing Texas rifles. Colonel Duquet was to lead the main assault on the north side, while a simultaneous attack was to be made on the east and west sides, and at the redoubt covering the sally port from the convent yard. No attack appears to have been contemplated on the stockade on the south wall at first. Accounts of what happened differ widely, it is to be remembered that no American lived to tell the tale, and it is hard to get at the absolute truth from Mexican testimony and the frightened recollections of two dazed women and two servants. Each narrator must build his own account by considering all the testimony and weighing the evidence. This that follows seems to me to be what happened. About four o'clock on Sunday morning, March 6th, the notes of a bugle calling the Mexican troops to arms rang over the quiet plain, across which the first gray light, precursor of the dawn, was already stealing. Bugles all about caught up the shrill refrain. Lights appeared in the circling camps, the trampling feet of hurrying men, neighing of the horses, all apprised the weary garrison that the moment they had expected was at hand. They were instantly assembled. What happened as they fell in on the plaza before they went to their several stations? Tradition has it that Travis paraded them, briefly addressed them, pointed out their certain fate, as he had sworn never to surrender, and bade any who desired to do so to leave him freely and escape while there was yet time. Not a man availed himself of the permission. "'We will stay and die with you,' they cried unanimously, as they repaired to their stations on the outer wall." Cool, calm, and resolute, they waited the breaking of the battle-storm. Undaunted by the prospect, unshaken by the fearful odds before them, America has produced no better soldiers. Even the dozen sick men in the long room of the hospital with Bowie were provided with arms, of which fortunately they had a good supply, and they too shared the same heroic resolution. Ill and well were equally determined. It was early morning when all the dispositions were made on both sides, and the day was breaking clear, cool, and beautiful, a sweet day indeed in which to die for home and country and liberty in the great cause of human freedom. So they may have thought as they looked towards the eastward light for the last time. The quiet watchers on the walls presently detected movements in the dark rank of the besiegers. They were coming then. Music, too, was there. All the bands of the Mexican army stationed with Santa Ana on the battery in front of the plaza were playing a ghastly air called De Guello, Cutthroat. That and the red flag, speaking of no quarter, pointed out a deadly purpose. Well, the Texans needed none of these things to nerve their arms. Rifles were lifted and sighted. The lock strings of the carefully pointed cannon were tightened. They could not afford to throw away any shots. There was no hurry no confusion. The Mexicans were nearer now. The bugles rang charge. The close-ordered ranks broke into a run. 
From the east, the west, the north they came, cheering and yelling madly. A shot burst from the plaza. The crack of the rifles broke on the air. A fusillade ran along the walls on every side. The cannon roared out, hurling into the faces of the Mexicans bags filled with hideous missiles. The advancing lines hesitated, paused, halted, fled. The first assault was beaten off. The ground was covered with dead and wounded. Comparative stillness supervened. Well done, brave Texans. Look to your arms again. Snatch a cup of water. Enjoy your moment of respite. They are coming again. The east and west columns had been driven to the north. Colonel Duquet, gallant soul, reformed them on his own brigade. There was a small breach in the north wall. He hurled the mass at it, himself in the lead. The Americans ran to the point threatened, again the withering rifle fire. Duquet fell, desperately wounded. Mortal man could not face that deadly discharge. The soldiers gave way once more, repulsed a second time. Would they dare come on again? Far off on the east side, the roar of battle still surged around the redoubt covering the convent yard. How went the battle there, thought the triumphant defenders of the plaza, as they gazed on their flying foemen. It was a critical moment for the Mexicans. Santa Anna recognized it, and galloped on the field, leading a reinforcement. He noted that the west wall had been denuded of most of its defenders, and with soldierly decision threw his fresh troops against it, leading them in person, some accounts say. Oh, for a thousand brave hearts and true to man the long lines! The hundred and eighty could not be everywhere. The few at the point of impact died, and the Mexicans entered the plaza at last. At the same time, the officers drove the men up to the third assault on the north wall. Under the eye of Santa Anna, they advanced for a last desperate attempt. Honor to those Mexicans for their bravery, too. In this attack, a bullet pierces Travis's brain. The little boy has only the heritage of an honored and heroic name, then. He falls dead on the trail of a cannon. Bonham is killed serving a gun. The north wall is taken. The redoubt to the east is gained. The stockade is attacked. Other soldiers swarm up to the south wall, break through the gate. They come in on every side. The Texans are surrounded by fire and steel. Some of them run back while there is yet time, and rally in the convent where Bowie lies. Others follow Crockett, now in chief command. To the church to die with him there. The whole Mexican army is upon them now, the nine score against the five thousand at last. The old convent is divided into little cell-like rooms, each with a door opening into the yard or plaza, but with no connection between the rooms. A few Texans hold each chamber, and into each smoke-filled enclosure the infuriated troops pour their gunfire and then rush the rooms, to writhe and struggle over the bloody pavements until all the defenders are killed. No quarter, indeed. What of the invalids in the hospital fighting from their beds? Forty Mexicans fall dead before the door of the long room, before they think to bring a cannon and blow the defenders into eternity. Bowie lies alone in his room, waiting with grim resolution for what is coming, pain from injuries forgotten, fevered pulse beating higher. His bed is covered with pistols, and near his hand lies his trusty knife. A brown, fierce face peers in the door. Another and another. The room is filled with smoke. Yells and curses and groans rise from the floor. 
where a trail of stricken soldiers reaches from the door to the bedside. And one bolder than his fellows lies on Bowie's breast with that awful American knife buried deep in his heart. And Bowie has died as he had lived, sword in hand. The only fight left now is in the churchyard. A little handful, bloody, powder-stained, desperate, are backed up against the wall. It is hand-to-hand -hand work now on both sides, no time to reload, bayonet thrust against rifle-butt in berserker fury. Hope is lost, but they are dying in high fashion, faces to the foe, striking while they have a heartbeat left. "'Fire the magazine,' says Crockett to Major Evans, the only remaining officer. The man runs towards the church where the powder is stored and is stricken down on the threshold. The Mexicans rush upon Crockett and his remnant. The keen death-dealing Betsy has spoken for the last time. The old frontiersman has clasped it by the barrel now. Swinging this iron war club, he stands at bay, disdaining surrender. The Mexicans are piled before him in heaps. But numbers tell. They swarm about him. They leap upon him like hounds upon a great stag. They pull him down, bury their bayonets in his great heart, spurn him, trample upon him, spit upon him. So he makes a fine end. It is over. Gunner Walker, the last man in arms, is shot and stabbed, tossed aloft on bayonets, in fact. The flag is down. No one is left to defend it longer. Five wounded, helpless prisoners are dragged before Santa Anna, and at his command butchered where they lie or stand, some of the Mexican officers, to their credit be it said, vainly protesting. Six people who were in the fort at the beginning were left alive by the Mexicans. Two women, two children, and two servants. One a Negro slave, the other a Mexican. One hour. One short hour filled with such sublime struggle as has not been witnessed often in the brief compass of sixty minutes. The sun is shining. The plaza is filled with light, the light of morning, the light of heroic death, of self-sacrifice absolute. And the day breaks, a day of eternal remembrance. Wherever men live to love the hero, these will not be forgotten. By the defense of that old deserted Spanish house of prayer, it was consecrated anew to the service of God through the sufferings of men. Their sacrifice had not been in vain, for the cry that swept Texas to freedom, that drove the Mexican beyond the Rio Grande, was, Remember the Alamo. One scene remains of the splendid story. By Santa Anna's orders, the dead Texans, to the number of 182, were gathered together and arranged in a huge pyramid, a layer of wood, a layer of dead, and so on, and the torch applied. A not unfitting end. As the dead demigod of Homeric days was laid upon his funeral pyre, as the dead Viking of later time was burned with his ship, so these modern heroes. The wind scattered their ashes on the spot their defense had immortalized, and made it forever a hallowed ground. The hundred and eighty had done well. Each one had accounted for more than four of the enemy, for the Spanish casualties are estimated as between six hundred and a thousand, and most was hand-to-hand -hand fighting. The Texan-Americans had done their best and given their all. Honor to their valor and their courage. On the monument erected at the state capitol at Austin, to commemorate their unparalleled achievement, is graven this significant line, 
Thermopylae had its messenger of defeat. The Alamo had none. End of section 52